politics is all about empathy. People believing that you understand their plight, their issue, their environment, their daily life, that you understand it and that you have a plan to help them. Growing up, I never saw someone with my name achieve success in politics or government. I would tell people, you know, I'm interested in running for office. And people would tell me, are you crazy? You know, your name is Aftab, which is not a strong ballot name, right? You should consider changing your name to Al or to Adam. Those people were trying to be helpful, but obviously being told that you don't have the right name, you should stop before you start, was challenging. Great companies are all about the people. Good people become great leaders, mentors for work and life. Welcome to Learnings from Leaders, the PG Alumni Podcast. I'm Roman Segel, Recovering Marketer. And I'm Andrew Tarvin, Humor Engineer. Roman and I both got our start at P&G, the Procter & Gamble company, where we had the opportunity to work with some amazing people. And as you may know, many leaders across industries got their start at P&G. In this series, through conversations with fellow P&G alums, we hope to go deeper with the leaders you already know, but want to know more about. It's kind of like being a fly on the wall for my mentoring coffees. On today's show, we're talking to P&G alumni leader Aftab Purval, the 70th mayor of the city of Cincinnati. It was a great conversation about showing up. Here's a quick bio. Mayor Aftab Purval is the 70th mayor of the city of Cincinnati. As mayor, he has made equitable economic growth a top priority of his administration, as well as a comprehensive reform and improvement public of public safety, affordable housing, and environmental action formerly serving as the first Democrat to be elected Hamilton County Clerk of Courts in over 100 years. He opened an award-winning help center and became the first countywide office holder in Ohio to offer paid family leave. Mayor Eftab was born and raised in Southwest Ohio. He attended The Ohio State University and the University of Cincinnati College of Law, where he represented victims of domestic violence who could not afford an attorney. And he served as a special assistant U.S. attorney, and he worked as an attorney in the legal department at Procter & Gamble. Mayor Aftab lives in Clifton with his wife and sons. What I love about this conversation was just how thoughtful Aftab was in his responses. He was very candid about his experience growing up as a child of immigrants living in Southwest Ohio and about his overall journey to where he is today. If you look at Aftab's resume, it might seem like it was perfectly crafted for his current role as mayor, but that's far from the truth. As he shares, he didn't even know it was a possibility for someone with a name like his to get elected. In addition to being authentic about his background, he's also very open with what it's like to work in the public sector in today's environment. It would be very easy to be pessimistic, especially given the subtle and overt discrimination he's faced throughout his career. But he shares the ways that we can proactively work to change for the better despite some of those challenges. And some of that optimism comes from his lessons learned while at PNG, like learning how to say no. In life, we have to say no to a lot of things, but what we say no to and how we say it are big drivers of our success. And that's one of the things that Aftab talks a lot about. But perhaps my biggest takeaway from the conversation comes from the advice he has for people who want to get more involved in their communities. He says it all starts with showing up, with participating. And that's something that Aftab definitely does in this conversation. He was authentic, thoughtful, made me laugh multiple times. So let's dive right in. We hope you'll enjoy our conversation with Aftab. Aftab, welcome to the podcast. It's great to have you with us. 
Thanks for having me, Drew. This is great. It's good to be back at PNG. That's right. Well, I am super excited for this conversation because it's it's unique in a couple of ways. Because uh, first of all, a sitting mayor we have not had on the podcast before, which is very exciting. And it's also exciting because you and I know each other a little bit. We were both resident advisors at the Ohio State University. So naturally, my first question for you is like, how amazed were you by me back then? <laughs> no, I'm kidding. Uh, we're not going to talk about that at all. What I'm amazed by is it seems like you have the world's best metabolism. You, you still look like you're in college. You, you've got that fighting weight. So well done. Well done to your genes. Thank you. I appreciate that. Despite the milkshakes that I drank, there is something about my metabolism. I appreciate that. Well, my, my real first question, because, you know, even knowing you back then, right, when you're getting your BA in political science and you got elected to become president of the undergrad student government, has politics always been the dream, like when you're growing up in Southwest Ohio, is that what you wanted to grow up to become to do something in that? Or was it something else? No, I mean, I look, I've always been interested in politics and in kind of current events. And that has a lot to do with my parents. So my mom is a refugee. She's from Tibet. Uh, and she grew up in India as a refugee. And that coupled with the fact that, you know, quality time with my dad was often he and I watching the evening news with Peter Jennings on ABC. Uh, so those two things kind of taken together naturally, almost unintentionally pushed me towards current events, government, politics and public service. And so, yeah, I, you know, I was I was always interested in that area, but I never it was never a dream necessarily because because I never really thought it was realistic for someone with my name and my ethnicity to find an electorate to elect me. And so it was more it was more a passion that I was very interested in and very involved in, both at the student government level, but then also volunteering and working on campaigns when I was younger. And then, you know, after uh, Ohio State, I went to law school and in law school, I, I really kind of just focused on the law. And even after law school, I was really just focused on the law because I viewed the passion of politics and public service as more of a hobby than anything that I could ever do as a career. Interesting. And so with, I mean, with that background, right, so mom, uh, as a refugee, anything that stands out to you from either of your parents or grandparents, like from the, the growing up stages that serves as a meaningful lesson for you that you still kind of think about? You know, my, I'm the, I'm the, the son of immigrants, right? So unfortunately, you mentioned grandparents, my maternal grandparents lived in Kathmandu, Nepal, when I was growing up, and my paternal grandparents lived in New Delhi, India. So I unfortunately didn't spend a lot of time with them. We would fly to Asia uh, almost every summer, maybe every other summer, but there was a language barrier. My maternal grandparents didn't speak English, so my relationship with them, while I loved them very much, was always a little bit at an arm's length because of those obstacles. And I think that's true for a lot of children of immigrants. Um, one of the challenges is that you don't have that infrastructure of network and mentorship. You don't, you don't even have, uh, oftentimes, your extended family that is nearby and accessible. And so a lot, of, a lot of what kind of formed me or inspired me or created my passion what was around my parents and their story and their lived experience as first-generation Americans. You know, I think if you asked my parents, they would be disappointed <laughs> that I didn't become a doctor or, or something like that. I mean, obviously, my, my parents are very proud of me. I'm, I'm mostly kidding. But, but their expectation for what I would achieve had nothing to do with politics, really, frankly, nothing to do with the law. 
because again, when, when you're an immigrant, you are, you know, focused on working hard on making your way in this country on providing uh, a life for your family. And they always kind of believe that medicine or really any profession would pr provide the stability and the security for their family. Mm -hmm. Politics is, is very insecure. There's, you know, there's, there's no stability to it. Uh, every time you're up for election, it's a job interview and you could lose your job. So of course they had their concerns, but they're, they're very happy with the path so far. Yeah. Well, it, it seems like it's working out pretty well. It, you know, as you, as you share that, it, it makes me think about like in my own experiences of my family grew up in Ohio, I think as far back as I can remember, we've been in Ohio and you right. there are advantages to that, like you said, of around a network or knowing people or even closer relationships with grandparents, et cetera. And, you know, one of the things that you mentioned already is growing up, you didn't know, you hadn't seen people necessarily elected with similar names to you. And so, you know, obviously one of the challenges that a lot of people have right now is there's a lot of conversation around diversity, equity, and inclusion. What have your experiences been as kind of the first Asian American chief executive in Cincinnati and the first mayor of Tibetan ancestry in any large American city? How have your personal experiences with prejudice or discriminations kind of shaped you and, and how have you overcome them? It's interesting that it's um, this conversation is happening during AAPI Heritage Month. Because as, as you mentioned, I am very proud of the fact that I'm the first Asian mayor of Cincinnati. I'm the first, frankly, Asian mayor of any major Midwestern city. But with that comes a special responsibility, not just to execute with excellence for my city, but to, to be a representative uh, and to be a role model for young Asian uh, and South Asian boys and girls. You know, if, if you can see it, you can believe it. And part of the reason why I never thought that I could become uh, an elected officials because I, I didn't see any Asian or South Asian elected officials near me or even countrywide. And, and so there's not just an impact on inspiring people to believe that that could be a reality, but it, there's, a, there's a real impact on a lack of mentorship and a lack of sponsorship for Asians and South Asians who are interested in a diverse array of, of industries. So there's, there's those obstacles, of course. And then, yeah, you know, I've, I've experienced a fair amount of both subtle and overt racism. In 2015, when I told people that I was interested in, in running, my, my career in public politics started, I, I ran for the Hamilton County Clerk of Courts. PNG's GEO is, is in Cincinnati, and, and that is in the county of Hamilton. And in 2015, I would tell people, you know, I'm interested in running for office, and people would tell me, are you crazy? You know, you're going to run for an office no one, no one has ever heard of or cares about against, you know, a, a very popular two-term incumbent. You know, your name is Aftab, which is not a strong ballot name, right? You, you should consider changing your name to Al or to Adam. Uh, and to do all that, you have to leave your job at P&G. What is wrong with you? And so those people were, were, I think, trying to be helpful and trying to be a mentor, but obviously being told that you don't have the right name and, and therefore you're going to you should stop before you start was challenging. So that that's kind of subtle prejudices. And then more overt prejudices, obviously negative campaigning is part of politics. But when I ran for Congress in 2018, uh, Paul Ryan Super PAC spent millions of dollars on a TV commercial claiming that I was a Libyan terrorist. So, you know, you, you run the, the spectrum of prejudices and racism that you experience, unfortunately, when you're of AAPI heritage. And if, if I could just end the this very long monologue on, on this statement, 
you know, unfortunately in this country, it's, it's always been accepted to be racist towards Asian people as far back as, you know, the building of the railroad to the internment camps more recently, the Muslim ban, which didn't affect any Asian countries, but certainly affected a lot of people of Asian descent. And I'm, I'm very proud of the fact that we're starting to have these conversations around AAPI hate and the rise in violence towards AAPIs. But we have to, as a country and a community, grapple with the fact that Asians still to this day, and, and I'm no exception, are caught in between two myths. Number one, the model minority, and number two, the permanent foreigner. So we are expected to execute with excellence and keep our mouths shut because we're supposed to be just grateful to be here, even though many of our families have been here for generations. Well, that, that, like you said, that is quite the, the spectrum from someone trying to give what they say is helpful advice of like, change your name to Adam, despite being called uh, Aftab for your entire life, to millions of dollars being spent on what is clearly a, a racist lie that is quite the, the gamut. And so how do you... How do you work to overcome that? Like you said, even even the smaller things of not necessarily have mentors that have gone through it before. Right? If, if you're if you're the first Asian American mayor of a major Midwestern city, it's not like you can call up another mayor that's exactly that same thing. Like, how did you do this? So how do you how did you work to overcome these challenges, both subtle and very overt? Yeah, it's really. I mean, it's it's really hard. Um, I was struck by now Justice Jackson's confirmation hearing. Uh, via the Supreme Court. And I was talking to someone and, and they said, and this is totally as it relates to her, someone said, you know, when you're first, oftentimes you have to be the best and you have to be perfect. And that's and that's really true. It's really true for Justice Jackson. It's really true for a lot of people who are either the first of their family to go to college or the first person to be elected. Because the barrier is, is so much higher because it just hasn't been done before. And uh, there's a lot of truth to the fact that you have to work harder and the expectations are so much higher. But for me personally, you know, I, I try very hard not to, uh, I try to be very intentional about um, being centered and not taking things personally, being very intentional about focused on what I'm trying to accomplish and why I'm trying to accomplish those things. You know, back at Ohio State, I was um, student body president and uh, as you know, Ohio State is just a massive school. And so being student body president of Ohio State is is, is kind of like being, you know, on city council of a, of, a, of a smaller city. And it really taught me at a very young age to distinguish constructive feedback meant to make you grow and personal attacks that were just meant to tear you down. Uh, and that lesson that I learned very early on, I've relied on throughout my career, both in politics and in law, to maintain my mental health, but also to continue to challenge myself to grow and improve. Yeah, which is, I think, one of the things I, I certainly wanted to ask you about, because I think you're you're writing, like, what a great kind of distinction between what what's going to, like, actually help me grow and is worth considering versus what's just someone being mean or trying to go after me. And, and that, I feel like, is something that politics has turned a lot into, at least from an outside perspective, it feels very, and it seems very kind of like aggressive. And now it's it's no longer, well, let's have a debate about this and see what's right. And we'll work through it. And we just have, you know, differences to now it's more of, well, if you're in a different party, then, you know, I'm never am going to work with you because it's terrible. It seems like there's a lot more of those personal attacks. 
And this is something that you, I know that you have spoken about. And when you did an interview around kind of your first 100 days, you said, hey, I think disagreement is good. I think debate is good. It's just not helpful when it is personal attacks. When, you know, when we disagreed about certain subjects, we can show that we can disagree without being disagreeable. How do you do that when there might be a, a group of people that you're working with that almost don't even want to have the conversation? Or how do you do that when some of the people that you know are in the city that you're elected mayor for may not even want to listen to you simply because of who you say you identify with? Yeah, this this is a, a real problem for the country. It's it's more acute on the national level than the local level. You know, our national politics are so partisan, they're so extreme that we've got folks accusing each other of being child predators. I mean, that's how toxic our national politics are. Part of the reason why I love my job is because on the local level, you know, certainly there are political parties at play, but it is much less hyper-partisan and the conversation is much more reasonable. You know, there's frankly no Republican or Democratic way to fix a pothole. It's more on the local level about driving results and improving the lives of the people around you rather than scoring cheap political points. And so, you know, I've been, I've been very fortunate to, to work with people on city council, not all of whom are Democrats, in a really collaborative and productive way. But you're right, there are some people in the city who I represent who vehemently disagree with me. And I always, I actually always take advice, or I always use the advice that uh, then Senator Biden, now President Biden gave, which is that he never questions someone's motive. He always assumes that the person is at the table advocating in good faith until they prove you wrong. And so I, I often go to places where people don't expect me to be, to hear people out, to come with out preconceived notions, to present my side of how I'm thinking about things, but also to be open about being wrong and to build on my knowledge base. And so far, that kind of authentic engagement has, has proven successful. Now, that, that works on the local level. It doesn't work on the national level. I, I don't have the answer for how we make our politics more healthy uh, across the country. But I can say this. The two areas that I would focus on are the unfettered access of money, that dark money that gets dumped into our politics that turns um, political conversations into the extreme. And the second is gerrymandering. And gerrymandering, unfortunately, isn't partisan. Both Republicans and Democrats do it. But when you have these gerrymandered districts, it appeals to the extremes of our political parties, which drowns out the middle. It, well, I think what, what I appreciate uh, around your, your focus is an optimism, a positivity around even even some of the difficulties that you're facing, right? The the focus on the positives at the local level and and having kind of a clear, at least starting point, even at a, a national level. And that's actually something that I didn't notice when I was doing a little bit of research. I noticed like in, in all of your pictures, if you're not like, if they didn't take a picture of you kind of in the middle of speaking, you are smiling, like what seems to be like a very nice, genuine, wonderful smile. So my question for you, just a quick question on that is like, are you just that good in front of a camera or is it that you're truly having fun and enjoying what you do? Like, how are you able to smile so wonderfully in each of these pictures? Look, being mayor of Cincinnati is awesome. I mean, I'm, I'm having a great time. It is, it is a, a wonderful time to be mayor of this great city. The Bengals have only lost once in my administration, so we're on a roll there. And, and the city is growing and, and has a lot of 
potential and a lot of great success. And, you know, it's just, it's been so much fun. You know, the other thing I'll say is obviously the job is, is really hard and very stressful. We're dealing with gun violence at a historic level, not just in Cincinnati, but across the country. Climate change continues to be a, a real challenge. Improving the lives of our black and, and brown families is a generational problem that we're, we're, we're still trying to work through. But all in all, having the opportunity to lead the city and every single day, my job description is, what am I gonna do today to improve the lives of the people living in Cincinnati? I mean, that, that is, if you can't get inspired and excited about that being your job, then, then you're in the wrong industry. And you know, the, the last thing I'll say about this is, not every day is fun, not every issue is fun, but I'm very intentional about joy because as the representative of the city, if I can be intentional about joy, then that will be contagious for the people around me. And it will provide a picture of Cincinnati as a, a place that is happy and on the rise. Well, yeah, as, as someone who, who speaks a lot about, you know, humor and, and fun in, in people's work and, and how to incorporate it, I think that's a wonderful message as a way to say about that, that intentionality of joy. I think sometimes people lose sight of the fact that you have to remind yourself sometimes of it or that you have to be intentional about finding ways to find the joy. Because I would imagine with your to-do list and running from one thing to the next, it could be easy to be like, well, I just got, I don't have time for all this other stuff. But so the fact that you're taking a break, taking a step back, to be intentional about that, I think, is is a wonderful reminder for all of us, no matter how busy we are. And I'm not always smiling. So oftentimes, if I'm in an elevator on the way to a meeting that I really don't want to have, this is a a small trick. Uh, I will force myself into a smile on the elevator ride up, and it will immediately improve my mood. So sometimes just those small uh, physical manifestations of happiness can actually improve your, your mental health as well. I love that as a, as a great trick, like using that elevator time, that little bit of time for, for yourself. Uh, the other thing that I noticed while doing a little bit of the, this research is that you do have mayoraftab.com. And just the internet geek in me wants to know, like, how early did you register that domain name? <laughs> like, was that only after you won during the race? Was it when you were like six years old? Like, when, when does the registration of a domain name come into play? No, not when I was six years old. You know, I honestly have no idea. I assume that we registered that after uh, we won, but I don't know. It, it's, it was definitely in the last year. You know, to, to be honest, you talked about, you know, was this my dream? I never imagined that I would be mayor of Cincinnati. I, I, am, I'm, I make no bones about it. I'm very intentional about my career. I, I think all successful people are. Uh, I'm very thoughtful about it. I, I like to have a plan. And being mayor was was just not part of the plan. It was a confluence of events outside of my control that kind of thrust me into the race. Uh, and so that <laughs> I definitely did not have the domain uh, until very recently. Okay. And so I do want to talk about that because it, at least from, you know, from a, a pure looking at a resume perspective, it does seem like things have lined up relatively well, right? So BA in political science from Ohio State, you go to law school at University of Cincinnati, you go to a law firm in DC where you're working on some really kind of challenging, interesting cases, special assistant to the US attorney for the United States Department of Justice. So that seems like one track. And then you do go to PNG for legal counsel on, I believe, Olay and, and, and brands and stuff like that. So I'm, I'm curious, 
the intentionality of that switch of going from, you know, Department of Justice to Procter and Gamble? You know, in hindsight, it looks like it looks like more intentional than it actually was, to be honest. Um, uh, in law school, as I mentioned, I wasn't focused on politics or public service. I was really just focused on I need to get a good job that will open up doors for me and help me pay off my student loans. And White and Case in D.C., from a law firm perspective, was the best law firm that offered me a job. And, you know, I had I had some offers from some other law firms around the country, but I wanted to be in D.C. and I wanted to work for White and Case because it, it has such a strong international portfolio. And so I went I went to D.C. and quickly found out that uh, that I was not happy. <laughs> so I actually started at White and Case. The start of my legal career was the day Lehman Brothers went under. September of 2008, the exact day. And so the first four years of my career were incredibly stressful because everyone was getting fired. There were fewer and fewer lawyers to do the work and, and the work was just increasing. And so I was just kind of working nonstop all the time, in very high stakes litigation and just kind of got burned out. And so I, I applied to be uh, to work for a federal judge and the judge hired me two years in advance and the judge was in Southern Florida in Miami in the Southern District of Florida. And so I did another year at White and Case. And I uh, sent a letter to the U.S. attorney of the Southern District of Ohio here in Cincinnati. His name was Carter Stewart. And I said, Mr. Stewart, I've got four years of high stakes litigation experience. I have a year of availability before I take a federal clerkship. Can I come and work for you for free for a year? I, I gave him an offer he couldn't refuse. So he <laughs> said yes. And I came home to Cincinnati in 2012, thinking I'd, I'd leave after a year to go down to Miami. But I fell, I fell back in love with the city, saw the incredible uh, growth that was happening, the excitement, the energy, the infusion of youth culture, and decided I wanted to stay. So I, um, I declined the job in Florida, started applying to jobs here in Cincinnati, and was lucky enough to get on at Procter & Gamble. So, you know, on paper, it looks like it was very kind of one, two, three, four, but it was it was much more circuitous than that. What was the what was the reason for like calling up and saying, hey, I'm going to work for free? Was it just, hey, I need more experience in this area or I'm going to go back home and be closer to family and I'll do kind of whatever? Like that seems to me like a very interesting kind of uh, side route to be like, OK, I know I've got a year, so let me just go and apply these talents for free somewhere. It was a number of things. You know, first and foremost, I was burned out. I was burned out on my job. I was burned out in D.C. and I, I, I did want to come home. But, you know, what to do at home? Uh, I, I really what, what I missed a lot in D.C. was not having time to invest in my community and not having time to provide some kind of service. And so it, it was very clear to me that I wanted to spend the year kind of feeding my my soul rather than feeding my resume and representing the United States of America in federal court is just an incredible responsibility and incredible honor. And so I, I quickly decided that that's what I wanted to do. Now, these jobs are really, really competitive because they're so important. And so I thought, well, how, how can I kind of distinguish myself from the from the crowd uh, in order to serve and serve successfully? And so it just it just so happened that this is going back a little ways, but sequestration was happening at the federal government because of the housing collapse and the impact on the federal government's budget. Uh, and so every uh, U.S. attorney's office in the country was under a hiring freeze. The timing worked out that my offer of free employment 
was um, was something that they were in dire need of. That I think is a, a great story. I've also kind of the ambition and the kind of, like you said, even before intentionality of joy, but also intentionality of, of feeding your soul combined with kind of this, this opportunity fits together. And then wanting to stay in, in Cincinnati, so you apply to places, get it, get the the role at at PNG. And I'm curious, what if anything did you learn at PNG that still kind of sticks with you, going from law firms, etc., into now a, a more corporate environment? One, I guess, maybe any changes, and two, any lessons that still stick with you? Yeah, two come to mind immediately. Uh, the first is how to say no. <laughs> so. <laughs> So what I was struck by when I got to Procter & Gamble was, <laughs> I hope this doesn't rub people the wrong way because I, I loved my time at P&G. Well, I'll just say that working at White & Case, you know, just a, a, a multinational law firm, I've got this incredible office with this incredible tech. Uh, you go to the U.S. Attorney's Office and you're representing the United States. You get all this like respect and incredible resources working with the FBI, ATF, et cetera. Then you get to P&G, and I, I think my first laptop was from like the 1990s, and I had like a 1970s phone. <laughs> so it was very clear to me that uh, at P&G, legal was not a uh, revenue-generating department. <laughs> and so, And there is this, there does seem to be this natural tension between so I was a brand attorney. I was the BFO and RBU attorney for Olay and CoverGirl, and we still had CoverGirl. Uh, and so it was my job to work with the marketers and work with uh, R&D to come up with the most impactful and persuasive and effective claims as possible to sell our products. And so in, in many ways, we are both collaborators, but we're also referees. And so you know, providing the guideposts for the marketers and R&D to make effective and ambitious claims, but also claims that are defensible. And so unfortunately, oftentimes lawyers are in a position to say where they have to say no. But I learned very quickly that just saying no was not collaborative and was not frankly helpful to the process, but rather you know, coming up with alternatives or being very clear about why, what, where the guidelines are and the guideposts are was more effective in coming up with the most powerful claim. So number one, how to say no. And that obviously very clearly resonates in politics because there's a lot of people coming at me with various asks representing various interests, and I can't say yes to everybody. And so I exercise that muscle on a daily basis. The second thing that I learned was maybe less about P&G, but just more about private sector versus public sector, was acceptance of risk. So part of my job as a, a um, brand attorney was to give the brands my best assessment of how risky a claim was. So, you know, oftentimes when we're making claims about our products, it's not very black and white. The rules are a little gray. And so there are some claims that kind of bump up right against the line. And there are some claims that are very safe. It was my job to kind of handicap how safe or unsafe a claim was, how, what, what, the, what the chances are that we'd have a class action lawsuit against us, basically. And when evaluating that risk, business leaders are often interested in pushing the envelope to innovate, to be aggressive, to not rely on the status quo. And so the acceptance of risk is the risk tolerance is much higher in the private sector. In the public sector, my experience so far has been that if the risk is like 5%, then the answer is no. 
right? The, the risk tolerance in the public sector is, is almost zero. And so as a result, government is not as innovative, it's not as nimble or flexible, and changing the status quo is very, very difficult. And do you find that that is something that this this risk tolerance that, which I think is, is very well kind of like articulated this difference between the two, is that something that you're trying to push a little bit more, would you say, in your role, maybe because of having that experience in the, the private sector? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, you know, I think we have to, to be fair, the bottom line is different in the private sector versus the public sector, right? The public sector is not a revenue generating endeavor. And so how we determine success is much different. And so that will necessarily affect risk. But where possible, I try to use private sector mentality and approach in order to modernize government and provide better services. You know, so so things as small as investing in IT infrastructure, which is, you know, obviously a no brainer from the private sector perspective, but it's one of the line items that often gets cut or ignored from the public sector. And so that's why the IT infrastructure and the interfaces for your, your government are just so antiquated and, and really difficult to get to. You know, the other, the other anecdotal thing I'll say is if I ask a question and the answer is, quote, because that's the way we've always done it, uh, that's a massive red flag for me to, to double click on and to investigate more. Certainly. And, and I mean, it goes back to that point on on the how to say no, there is, you know, in, in improvisation, you learn this kind of concept of yes and, which is about building ideas, say yes, and yes, not as like acceptance or I agree with everything that you say, but more of that I've heard you and then and I'm going to build to it. And what's interesting is there's also a really, I think, valuable corollary to that, which is no, but right? Like that you're saying that it's not just no, and then we're done, but like, no, but here's what we could do instead, or here's where to, you know, also focus, or uh, here's what we might also try. So I think that, you know, that recognition of, of not just saying no, but looking at it broader, I love the way that you kind of said that it's it's not collaborative just to say no entirely by itself. And uh, I want to come back to that in uh, a little bit, but I want to ask a little bit about this this switch, right? So you've you've gone from you know you go from from government to or public sector to private sector, and then back into public sector. Was that kind of hey also got burned out, or was it just the opportunity was there? Why the decision to go after being at PNG to say okay no let's return. Uh, so, as I mentioned, when growing up, I never, I never saw someone with with my name achieve success in politics or government on an elected level, and that changed in two thousand eight. Uh, so, with the election of President Barack Obama, it really inspired me to believe that no matter what you look like or where you're from or what your name is, if you work hard, you can make a difference in the political sphere. And so, you know, when I gra- two thousand eight was the year I graduated law school. And I was still at that point kind of focused in on my career, focused in on paying off my loans, focused on on my career as an attorney. But when I moved back to Cincinnati and saw just the incredible change that was going on, I not only wanted to stay in Cincinnati, I wanted to be a part of it. And I've always thought that the best opportunity to transform your community is through politics. And so in 2014, 15, I decided that that I would run for office and try to try to do my part. And thankfully, I was successful. And what was the conversation like when talking with your family, like with your wife, with your parents, who certainly had like a, a certain maybe 
expectation or maybe hope for you when you go from like you said you kind of alluded to it before like hey i'm at procter and gamble which if you grow up in cincinnati is like one of the places to work to then say like hey i'm gonna i'm gonna do this other thing were they completely on board was it like no hey let's increase this acceptance of risk a little bit and try it out what was that conversation like it was i mean she my mom uh was chiefly worried about me being able to feed and clothe myself <laughs> so she was so she was a little bit concerned about that but but you know, I, I mentioned earlier, people were like, are you crazy? What's wrong with you? When, when I told people I wanted to run for the clerk of court's office, I would say that was the prevailing thought amongst my family, not only the community, but amongst my family. And, and even, even with my then fiance, now my wife, their response was kind of like, oh, that's cute. <laughs> right? <laughs> go, go try and do that. Get your, get your ass kicked and then just go back to P&G. Um, so no one really... I don't want to say they didn't take it seriously, but they expected me to lose. And so it was very easy to be supportive of of me, you know, campaigning for a year and, and learning and then kind of going view, viewing it as a bit of a left turn, but that it would it would kind of go back to normal after a year. I don't think people fully appreciated the fact that I could win until very late in the process. But, you know, that was that was part of why I was so proud of, of our victory, because we, we proved a lot of people wrong uh, about that race, but also about how people with ethnic names, how successful they can be in politics in, in southern Ohio. Yeah. And did you I mean, would, to hear this from from people around you, did you kind of feel the same way where it was like, um, well, at least I'm going to try and who knows what will happen? Did you were you on the like, no, I'm going to do this and, and people are going to realize that, no, I could do this. Where what was your mentality at the beginning of it? Oh, no, I you know, I, I, I was always confident that we were going to win. I, you know, I, I don't think people fully appreciate how hard it is to run for office. So I know, look, I know that uh, elected officials and politicians get a people have a negative opinion of them. And part of the negative opinion is that they're just running for office. They're never actually governing. Mm-hmm. The actual act of running for office is very, very unglamorous, particularly at the local level. So the idea that someone would run for office knowing that they're going to lose, but just doing it anyway for their ego, you know, is very, very rare because it's, you know, eight hours a day of having, you know, awkward conversations with people who don't want to talk to you. Uh, it's eight hours a day of asking people for money or asking people for their vote. The, the amount of a physical toll that it takes on you is extraordinary because every single interaction you have with someone is an opportunity to win or lose a vote. So you have to be on at all times. It's really, really hard. So in order to go through that, I, I needed to be convinced that I, I was doing it for the for important reasons, and number two, that I could win. Uh, I always believed I could win. I, I, now, look, I was realistic. I knew that I was the underdog, and it was a bit of a long shot, but uh, I always knew that there was a path. And and, and I was curious about this of the the particular like election day or election night because it seems like that it it seems like a somewhat rare instance and maybe it's slightly different in local politics but it seems like a somewhat rare instance like if you're job interviewing it's it's not like you're going to know at this kind of particular day and then you're like leading up to that day how's it going to be it's just kind of like you may get a call or may not there's a little bit more ambiguity about it how did you manage things leading up to the election 
you know, what do you do that day when you're starting to wait for results? Is it, do you, are you constantly checking things? Are you like, I'm going to try to go to a park and imagine that this isn't going on and I'm not going to sit around and, and wait for results or what's the, what's the strategy for knowing, you know, Hey, I'm waiting for this particular news around this particular time frame. You, you just stay busy. Uh, there, there are hundreds of polling locations where people are voting uh, throughout the community. And so uh, right when the polls open at 6.30 a.m. until the polls close at 7.30 p.m., my day is scheduled where I'm going from polling location to polling location, trying to talk to as many voters as possible. I have a tradition of eating lunch at the uh, Clifton Skyline here in Cincinnati. That superstition has been successful for me so far. But yeah, you, you just kind of stay in the moment, uh, continue to work hard, run through the finish line, and then have a beer <laughs> and hope that you win. <laughs> I love it. And I love that, that, that tradition of eating lunch at, uh, at the Clifton Skyline. Uh, I was just there recently when I was back uh, visiting Ohio. And I think what's interesting, though, is like anytime you have those stressful things, having these kind of traditions, I think, can help. And so in pretty much all of your races, you've run against what other people might consider more established voices, right? Whether it's the incumbent or people who have been in politics for a long time. Uh, so I guess my first question is, how do you manage, one, the excitement of win with the clerks of courts or the mayor uh, scenario or the challenge of the loss with the congressional race? First, how do you manage the emotions of the excitement and or the disappointment? Maybe it's disappointment, maybe it's something else in terms of when not winning. It's, it, it's something I struggle with every day actually, because I, I try very hard to stay in the middle. You know, there are incredible highs uh, in politics. I mean, just incredible highs. When you pass an ordinance or a piece of legislation that you know is going to make a transformative difference, you know, when, when you're able to connect a, a, a often overlooked community to the right resources or, or to the right program, when you're just able to help someone, the highs are extraordinary. The lows are really tough as well, because running for office and being an elected official is so personal. You're in such a vulnerable position um, because if you lose, whether it's uh, lose a race or if your piece of legislation fails, it's hard not to take that personally as an indictment on you as a person. And so I try really hard for my own mental health, frankly, not to get wrapped up in the highs and not to get wrapped up in the lows to try and stay even keel right in the middle. And, you know, some days I'm, I'm more successful at it than others, but it's a, it's a balancing act that I, you know, continue to challenge myself with. Yeah, and it seems like with pushing a lot of things or having a lot going on, then hopefully, you know, you, you can't sit, you can't, dwell on one win or a loss too long because there's something next that's coming. There's another thing that you are working towards. Cause I know, especially for you and the, the agenda that you have is, you know, very aggressive in some ways and successful so far in many ways as, as well. And so when you think about the, the successes that you have had, the, the beating out some of these established voices, what do you think has gone into that? What what contributes to people saying no? We want some, we're going to take a, a chance on this this name that maybe looks a little bit different than what other names have been voted in in the past. All campaigns really come down to change or status quo, and I always think that change is the the most profound and persuasive message in politics. I've been very fortunate to be a challenger in many of the biggest races that I've run in. 
uh, I've been viewed as the outsider. Now, the other side of that coin is if you're viewed as a foreigner or if you're viewed as too much of an outsider. But, you know, politics is all about empathy. People believing that you understand their plight, their issue, their environment, their daily life, that you understand it and that, and that you have a plan to help them. And so when you are a change agent, when you're from the outside, if you have an ethnic name, there's a barrier towards creating that connection or that empathy out of thin air. But so far, I've been able to put people at ease with who I am and what I represent while also leveraging a message of change. I think what is, you know, from my own story, the biggest obstacle that that I've had to confront is is my name, Aftab Purval, because it's, you know, it's a very ethnic, it's not a, a common name here in Southwest Ohio. And hearkening back to the, the story I told you, those people who told me to change my name to Adam, you know, they weren't wrong. When you see AFTAB on a yard sign, it doesn't immediately occur to you that that's a human being. Maybe it's an advertisement for an insurance company, or maybe it's an acronym for a medication. Um, and so there is there is a disconnect there. And so instead of running away from my name in my 2016 campaign, I actually hung a lantern on it. I made it the strength of my campaign. So every time in my TV commercials, I said my name, a big yellow duck puppet popped up and repeated it in the Aflac voice. Uh, so obviously that is very memorable. It's creative. It's self-deprecating. And self-deprecation is fertile ground for creating connection and empathy. And it also boosted my name idea and was successful. And now those same people who told me to change my name to Adam, they now come to me and say, hey, you know, Mayor, I can't win in Hamilton County. My name is Joe Smith. How am I going to stick out from the crowd? So I'm, I'm really proud of the fact that our campaign and, and our win has kind of has created a paradigm shift about what a strong campaign looks like. Well, and I think it's a great way of turning what is perceived as this, you know, challenge or weakness into a strength, right? The self-deprecating humor to it of, you know, you're making it, oh, it's almost more memorable now. I don't know what, you know, I don't remember all the other names of signs that I've seen, but Aftab, that was different. That's something that sticks in my head. Oh, wait, I like the messaging as well. Like, I think that's a great kind of pivot to to turning that into a, a strength. And you mentioned kind of this idea of change being really a catalyst in many ways. And I think a lot of us are, are feeling that. But I think aside from, you know, running for office, which maybe is, like you said, is, is a great way to, to give change. If there are people that are listening to this that are like, I, I do want to do more, I want to contribute, I want to make a difference, or I want to try to help, you know, resolve some of the divisiveness that we seem at a national or maybe even local level, what can everyday people do to be a little bit more civically minded that would be supportive in terms of some of the things that you're trying to, to push at a high level, not necessarily specifically to Cincinnati, but regardless of where people are? Showing up, right? 90% of success is showing up. The, wh wherever you are, whether it's philanthropies or politics, people are in need of volunteers and folks who are civically engaged. And so whatever, whatever your issue is, you don't, you don't have to run for office. You don't have to go knock on doors for a campaign. But whatever your interest is, if you can invest your time and your resources and most importantly, show up for that organization or for that issue, you can have a profound impact. But what I love about what I love about this country is, you know, democracy is a participation sport. And if you're not participating, the strength of our democracy is weakened. And that's true, not just in our government, but across industries. 
That's a, a fantastic, easy starting point is to pick an area that you're interested in and show up. So as we start to to wrap up, uh, Mayor Aftab, I have a couple of just quick questions just so people get to know a little bit more about you. Uh, so I guess the very first quick one would be, what's a fact about you that surprises people? So mm. for example, the only elected position that I've ever had was treasurer for the Spanish Honor Society in high school which I won despite not really speaking all that much Spanish, but some people are surprised to learn that. What's one surprising uh, fact about yourself? I was in an Indian dance group in high school, uh, Bhangra, and I'm a phenomenal dancer. I love it. That's an amazing fact. Now I want to see it happening. Uh, what's your go-to form of kind of media escape? Are you watching movies, reading books, watching TV shows, listening to podcasts? Yeah, I'm, I, I crush a lot of content. Uh, right now, I'm really into The Staircase on HBO Max. Okay. Highly this recommend. Is a, a series? Yes, it's a, it's a kind of ripped from the headlines uh, series on HBO. I like it. I'll have to check it out. And if, if you could take over the, the PNG Alumni podcast for a day, who would you want to have a conversation with? Hmm. It could be anyone. It doesn't have to be a PNG alumni person. I'd, I'd probably want to talk to former CEO Smale because he was responsible for the Smale Commission, which is uh, really the guiding document for how Cincinnati prioritizes its budget. And now that we're in a kind of post-pandemic, not we're not post, we're pseudo-post-pandemic world, and the pandemic has fundamentally altered the way we work, live, and play, we need a similar generational engagement to create a new budget for Cincinnati. And so I'd love to just uh, get his perspective and his advice on on what they were facing in the 70s and how they responded. I love it. Fantastic. And and last question for you, Aftab, what is one final piece of advice or even challenge that you'd give to the next generation of leaders? The, the times in my life that I regret are times when I have been selfish or when I have been timid. And so I really try to be mindful when making decisions about leaning into risk and being bold and having faith uh, and confidence and also challenging myself to be kind and patient and generous. I love it. Fantastic advice. Well, Aftab, thank you so much for taking the time to to chat with us today for the, the insight and uh, wisdom coming from your stories as well. And that's our show. Like what you've heard, please subscribe and rate us on your favorite podcasting platform. For show notes about this episode, links to things mentioned or requests for sponsorship, visit pgalums.com slash podcast. Follow us on Twitter at pgalumpod. We'd love to hear from you. Learnings from Leaders is a production of the PNG Alumni Network, a global nonprofit founded by former PNGers committed to community, enrichment, and philanthropy. With more than 45,000 registered members worldwide, the network connects alums through global conferences, local chapters, industry events, and online content. Our nonprofit foundation supports economic empowerment in communities around the world. To find out more, visit pgalums.com. That's it for this week. I've been Andrew Tarvin. And I'm still Roman Segel. Thanks for joining Learnings from Leaders, the PNG Alumni Podcast. We'll see you next time.